Hi, this is Rosie Tillis and Rachel Hine, Duke Plastic Surgery residents on The Resident Review, a Duke Plastic Surgery podcast. This is a lecture series designed to aid in preparation for our yearly in-service examination. Our goal is to take you through high-yield topics along with experts in their respective fields in order to maximize your knowledge and potential scores. Stay tuned after the episode for a brief message about our sponsors. In this episode, we'll be discussing body contouring. This is the part of our quick hit series, which is a series based solely on questions from the previous in-service examinations from 2013 to 2020. So we'll get started. We'll talk about body contouring, including brachioplasty, liposuction, abdominoplasty, lower body lifts, massive weight loss, and thigh plasties. So starting with brachioplasty, this is a body contouring procedure often done in bariatric surgery patients who demonstrate laxity and tissue excess of the arms following weight loss. There are several techniques, mainly liposuction versus skin excision. For your skin excision, you can have a full length posterior or posterior medial incision or a minimal incision brachioplasty. Skin laxity is the greatest determinant of whether liposuction versus excision is necessary or both. To determine what you need, we do a pinch test. If you have a greater than 1.5 centimeter pinch test on the posterior arm, then liposuction is an appropriate option. Skin laxity with little fat is treated with direct excision. Skin laxity and lipodystrophy are treated with a combination. And the laxity of the skin is caused by loosening of the clavopectoral fascia. This lies deep to the pectoralis major muscle and extends from the clavicle to the dome of the axillary fascia. So a procedure includes liposuction or skin and fat removal, like we talked about, following anchoring the arm flap to the axillary fascia to prevent widening of the scars. This is the strength layer. So it'll be arm dermis to axillary dermis to axillary fascia, which we've been tested on. A posterior medial incision versus a posterior incision. So the posterior medial incision has been shown to minimize tension on the surgical incision, which leads to better scarring and less visibility of arm scars. And performing liposuction in conjunction with brachioplasty aids in tissue dissection. That's been a question and decreases the risk for nerve injury and lymphedema. It does not increase wound complications. Common complications of a brachioplasty. The most common complication is a wide-end hypertrophic scar. Additionally, this is the most common reason for revisionary procedures. Most common complication of liposuction of the arm is contour irregularities. And medial antibrachial cutaneous nerve injury is what we're commonly tested on, and this can cause a medial forearm sensory loss. The anatomy of the nerve, it branches around the basilic vein in the distal third of the forearm and penetrates the deep fascia approximately 14 centimeters proximal to the medial epicondyle. And the recommended technique to protect the MABC is to leave a one centimeter cuff of fat overlying the deep fascia. We'll move on to cryolipolysis, which is a cold-induced paniculitis, so inflammation. This is also called cool sculpting, and it's a non-surgical technique. It sets the targeted areas at 44 degrees Fahrenheit for a preset period of time, which targets the adipocytes. All right, so inducing this paniculitis induces apoptosis of the adipocytes via cellular edema and increased inflammation. The inflammatory cells have peak infiltrates at about 30 days. And there is a a phenomenon of paradoxical adipose hyperplasia that is a known complication of cryolipolysis where the area treated has an increase in adiposity. Um, Other increased risks are use of a large applicator, male sex, Hispanic background, and abdominal location of treatment. And the treatment of paradoxical adipose hyperplasia is power-assisted liposuction. 
the most common complication of paralipolysis is transient hypoesthesias, and this usually results in six months. We'll move on to liposuction. So talking about the anatomy of the abdomen, the subcutaneous fat is divided into two layers, superficial and deep. The superficial layer is one to two millimeters below the dermis, and it's dense and compact. This requires superficial liposuction, but can create contour irregularities if you become too superficial. The deep layer is loose and areolar with few septa, and conventional liposuction can be performed here safely. Tumescent infiltration and liposuction is a common test question. So usually the concentration of tumescent includes 30 to 55 milligrams per kilogram of lidocaine. Peak levels of lidocaine in your patient will occur at eight to 18 hours after, after infiltration. And there are various solutions of tumescent. We'll talk about dry first. This is when you have no tumescent and you can have blood loss up to 40% of the aspirate. A wet tumescent solution means that you have 200 to 300 mils of solution per anatomic area to be treated. Super wet, the ratios we're commonly tested on, this is a super wet is a one-to-one -one ratio of solution instilled to the aspirate. You can have blood loss of about 1%, so think one, one, one for super wet. Tumescent is considered to have two to one or three to one wetting solution per mil of aspirate. And you can have blood loss of 1% in this aspirate as well. So tumescent, two to one or three to one, and super wet is one to one. Between 10 to 30% of the local anesthetic administered is present in the aspirate. When you're doing liposuction, um, some areas to be careful of include the zones of adherence. That's another thing that we're commonly tested on. So this is zones where the superficial fascial system sends elements through the deep compartment attaching to the investing fascia of the underlying muscles. This includes the lateral gluteal depression, the iliotibial tract, and the gluteal crease. Level three evidence reveals that removal of excess fat through liposuction results in long-term reduction of fat in those areas without fat reaccumulation in either treated or untreated areas of the body. And that maintains if the patient, patient does not gain weight. Suction-assisted liposuction versus ultrasonic-assisted liposuction. The main advantage of ultrasound-assisted liposuction is less surgeon fatigue. No studies have shown consistent clinical benefits of ultrasound versus suction-assisted liposuction. Laser-assisted liposuction has been shown to decrease pain postoperatively. A large volume of aspirate includes over five liters, and you would want to consider these patients for overnight observation because you removed so much fluid from them. Complications, uh, we've talked about a few of liposuction, um, but the one that we're commonly tested on is lidocaine toxicity. Early findings include perioral numbness, tinnitus, metallic taste, anxiety, muscle twitching, and seizures. Cardiovascular findings can include tachycardia and hypertension that can progress to ventricular arrhythmias and ultimately asystole. Treatment of lidocaine toxicity includes ACLS and administration of a bolus of 20% lipid emulsion. So lidocaine toxicity, lipid emulsion, and get them in the hospital so you can monitor them. Fat embolism is another complication of liposuction. It's rare, but it presents with three classical symptoms, respiratory distress, cerebral dysfunction, so an alteration in mental status, and a petechial rash. Typically, this happens at around 24 to 72 hours after surgery. The most common cause of death in suction lipectomy is venous thromboembolism. The risk of death is highest when lipoplasty is combined with abdominoplasty. Risk factors for complications in suction lipectomy include aspiration of large amounts of tissue, increased volume of tumescent infiltration, 
and concomitant procedures. So next we'll talk about gluteal fat grafting. Most commonly we are just tested on the complications, but know that this has a higher mortality than any other aesthetic operation and most deaths occur by pulmonary embolism. The most common causative mechanism of a PE is a mechanical tear of the large gluteal vein followed by either intravascular injection of fat or migration of extravascular fat into an injured vein by pressure gradient. And safety measures for gluteal fat grafting avoid injecting into the muscle, use a single hole cannula greater than 4.1 millimeters, avoiding downward angulation of the cannula and only injecting when the cannula is in motion. A paniculectomy is excision of the paniculus and Medicare and Medicaid guidelines for approval include inability to walk normally, chronic pain and ulceration created by the abdominal skin fold. When the paniculus hangs below the level of the pubis, intertrigo recurrent over a three month period and stable weight loss for at least six months and 18 months after gastric bypass surgery. Abdominoplasty includes elevating an abdominal flap and advancing to lower incision for excess skin removal. Skin and fat is removed from this and typically a rectus plication is completed above and below the umbilicus. The umbilicus is then telescoped through the abdominal flap at the level of the iliac crest. We're commonly tested on that. And patients with both, both vertical and horizontal skin laxity are candidates for a corset or fleur-de-lis abdominoplasty, which includes a vertical and horizontal component. Progressive tension sutures are placed from scarpus fascia to the abdominal wall fascia and help close the dead space, minimize flap movement, minimize seroma rate, and minimize tension on the closure. And another common method for decreasing tension of the skin closure, if it is tight, is you can close the native umbilical skin by opening up the in the vertical direction, and that's sometimes used for closure. Zones of abdominoplasty, so zone one is the mid-abdomen, and this is supplied by the deep inferior epigastric perforators. Number two is the lower abdomen supplied by the external iliac, and three is the lateral abdomen supplied by the intercostals. To note, you can perform intra-abdominal surgeries plus an abdominoplasty safely, and we have been tested on that. Innervation of the abdominal wall includes the anterior cutaneous branches of the 6 through 12 intercostal nerves, and these are severed when you're undermining the abdominal flap. Other nerves at risk include the iliohypogastric, ilioinguinal, and, and like I said, the intercostal nerves. The genitofemoral nerve, of course, is deep to the abdominal wall and pierces the fascia below the inguinal ligament. Thus, it is spared or not at risk during an abdominoplasty, and we have been asked about that. The TAP, or a transversus abdominal plane block, it, this blocks the intercostal nerves that course between the transversus and the internal abdominal oblique muscles, and you can block to provide pain control. The reliable block is from T10 to L1 dermatomes, and you use a lateral approach from the triangle of petite. To prevent venothromboembolism, you, we use the Caprini risk assessment model, which we've talked about in a previous lecture. Um, but we know that abdominoplasty carries the greatest risk for VTE out of all the elective surgeries we do. The ASPS task force recommends those undergoing elective plastic surgery who have a score of seven or greater to have risk reduction strategies, including limiting OR time, weight reduction, discontinuation of hormone therapy, early postoperative mobilization, and extended use of low molecular weight heparin. Major plastic surgery cases are considered 60 minutes or greater, and those should under, also undergo prevention. And then the highest risk factors for Caprini scores include age over 75, a history of a DVT or PE, positive factor V Leiden, a history of HIT, history of elevated anti-cardiolipin, serum homocysteine, 
prothrombin or lupus anticoagulant, and then a congenital or acquired thrombophilia, and like I said, a family history or personal history of thrombosis. So seroma is the most common complication after abdominoplasty and abdominoplasty plus liposuction. And this is pre prevented, like I said, by placing those progressive tension sutures or the use of drains. If you do have a seroma, you'll perform serial aspiration. If this does not resolve, then you can place closed suction drains and then consider the use of a sclerosing agent like doxycycline and the last resort is an operative IND. The rate of complications based on Grotting's data in abdominoplasty alone is 3.1, but we have been tested on abdominoplasty plus other procedures, so I'll go through that very quickly. Abdominoplasty with liposuction is 3.8. Abdominoplasty with breast procedures is 4.3. And then if you do abdominoplasty, breast, and lipo, it's 4.6. And then abdominoplasty plus any body contouring procedure has the highest increase with a 10% risk of complications. And then if you do an abdominoplasty plus body contouring plus breast procedure, that goes up to 12%. And I know that's a lot, but we have been tested on that. The area for least return of sensation involves below the umbilicus and above the incision, so the infra-umbilical area. And the supra-umbilical abdomen has been considered the area where liposuction might further disrupt blood supply from the already interrupted uh, abdominoplasty undermining. So this is prior to advancement. So you want to avoid liposuction centrally if performing in conjunction, which is zone one. Skin necrosis is likely to occur in the suprapubic area as blood supply to the abdominoplasty is derived from the lateral interstitial vessels, which corresponds to the supra umbilical area prior to advancement, like we talked about. Another complication you can see is a supra umbilical bulge, and this is usually caused by failure to plicate the rectus muscle. And finally, we have lateral femoral cutaneous nerve injury or LFCN. This nerve exits the abdomen near the anterior superior iliac spine and, and is the most commonly injured nerve in abdominoplasty. Signs and symptoms include anterior and lateral thigh burning, tingling, numbness, and diagnosis can be confirmed with injection of local anesthetic or atenels. Treatment is conservative or surgical depending on the patient's symptoms. Moving on to lower body lift. This requires continuous or discontinuous release of the lateral gluteal depression to be the most effective in allowing the advancement of the flaps in the lower body lift. For lower body lifts, you must assess the nutritional status in massive weight loss patients specifically. Complications of lower body lift include seroma, which is the most common. Treatment strategies include percutaneous aspiration, drainage, and injection of sclerosin agents, similar to our uh, previous discussions. And some of those common sclerosins can be doxycycline or bleomycin. Hematoma is another common complication of a lower body lift. Male gender is an increased risk factor for hematoma, linseroma, and patients independent of other comorbidities. Thyplasty specifically has a couple different techniques. You can have a transverse or a vertical thyplasty. It's important to suspend the thigh flap to the superficial fascia system, which is Collie's fascia in the thigh. This prevents complications such as widening and inferior migration of the scars. Um, traction deformity of the vulva and early recurrence of thytosis. Complications of thyplasty include for full-length thyplasty, the most common complication is prolonged edema due to circumferential compression of the low-pressure lymphatic system. Massive weight loss patients are another subset of patients who have very specific nutritional needs and very specific wound healing complications, so we'll talk a little bit about them. In patients who have undergone gastric bypass surgery, consensus recommendations are to wait to proceed with body contouring surgery until the patient is at least one year from their surgery and until the patient has had stable weight loss for three to six months. Stable weight, not stable weight loss. 
Gastric bypass has been shown to be associated with higher rates of surgical complications following body contouring than other weight loss methods. Looking at the nutritional status in bariatric patients, they often have deficiencies in calcium, B12, folate, and thymine, and this is often because of the surgery that they've had, possibly removing part of their bowel. So you want them to have a minimum of 60 to 100 daily, daily grams of protein to prevent malnutrition and avoid delayed wound healing. Iron deficiency is the most common nutritional deficiency in 30 to 50% of these patients and should be evaluated with the CBC. Thymine or B1 deficiency can present as postoperative confusion like Wernicke's encephalopathy, if you can dig up some step one knowledge. The most common complication following body contouring for post-massive weight loss patients is seromas. And you can treat this the same way that we described under abdominoplasty and thyplasty. And then some of our miscellaneous facts for this episode, um, barb sutures, so if you think of like a VLOC suture, the advantage of those is that studies show decreased operative time if patients have a history of familiar, familial VTE or recurrent miscarriages, you want a consultation with a hematologist because there is likely an undiagnosed genetic thrombophilia and patients will have a higher risk of VTE with a body contouring procedure. The most common inherited thrombophilia is a factor V laden. It presents in three to 7% of individuals due to, and it is due to increased resistance to protein C. Some mental liposuction, um, one of the complications is marginal mandibular weakness. If that occurs, you want to observe it. Nerve injury is reported to be less than 1%. So remember the marginal mandibular nerve is typically positioned above the inferior border of the mandible in 81% of patients and can be below in 19% of patients. Normal body temperature during surgery specifically reduces the likelihood of surgical site infections and reduces the risk of bleeding. All right, well, that, was our, that concludes our liposuction and abdominoplasty. Uh, quick hits lecture. Thanks so much. Thanks. We'll see you for our next one, rhinoplasty. We would like to thank Allergan for their continued support of our podcast. Allergan Aesthetics is now a part of AbbVie, an international leader in many different therapeutic categories. Many of the topics and therapies we discuss on our podcast are provided by Allergan. They continue to be a leader in the fields of breast reconstruction, abdominal wall reconstruction, medical aesthetics, and much more. Additionally, they are dedicated to supporting the education of plastic surgery residents and plastic surgeons across the country.